Hi, and welcome back to Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Charity. And because it's been such a long time between the last episode and this, and we're totally in the middle of some guy's story, I'm going to go ahead and recap Jacob for you. So we've been following Jacob. Jacob is a younger brother who's got a twin. He kind of, him and his mom kind of tricked their dad into stealing his brother's blessing. But his brother did, in truth, give it up uh, over a bowl of beans. Um, So he... Uh, went away to find a wife and a life and these kinds of things and was going to later return. So he went to back to his relative's house and he went to his Uncle Laban's where his Uncle Laban is quite the character builder. And actually, this is kind of where we see the humility that gets built in Jacob. Even though we kind of have these mm, villains in our life, uh, we do find that they build character in us. And in this case, uh, Laban had tricked Jacob into working for him for seven years. Jacob did name the terms, but as far as the agreement was that he would work seven years to marry Leah. They had the wedding feast and all of these things, and Laban pulls an old switcheroo, sticks Leah in in Jacob's bed uh, instead of Rachel. And he was like, didn't I tell you about our custom? Yeah, we can't marry off the older sister before marrying off the younger. So he totally reconditions the terms and says, look, I'll let you marry Leah, but you owe me seven more years. And you could just have her in a week instead of waiting a whole nother seven years. So she gets married. There becomes dueling wombs. Leah, Leah can't have babies. Or I mean, Leah can have babies, but Rachel can't. So Rachel has her maid be kind of a concubine to Jacob to catch to even the score and not to be outdone. Leah sends over her maid to be a concubine and uh, on and on. And I just kind of gave you the progression of how they ended up having these 12 kids, well, 12 sons and one daughter. So now that this has happened, Jacob has now worked, um, a total of 14 years for his wives and an additional six years to kind of earn his own keep. And at this point, he goes to Laban, his father-in-law, who he's made very, very, very wealthy, um, and says, look, can I go and build my own life now? Like, I kind of want to go back to where I'm from. And Laban's like, sure. And of course, this is a guy who, through his uh, narcissism, selfish, selfishness, he builds integrity into Jacob. So Jacob has always kept his sheep for him. And so Laban says, sure, how can I pay you or these kinds of things? And Jacob's like, look, you know, I've never asked for anything from you. He's like, I'll tell you what. Basically, can you give me all the spotted and speckled sheep or the black sheep? And the wool is, um, the lighter colored wool is actually more beneficial to have because you can dye that any color you want, but the spotted and the mixed and the speckled stuff isn't as pretty to work with. So in that way, he's giving Laban the better deal. But da- like Laban's kind of this trickster, trickster, right? And so 
he says, sure, you could do that. And he goes, that way, Jacob goes, if you look through any of my sheep, if you find anything that's white, you'll know I stole it. That way you can't say like, I took something that's yours. So Jacob asked for payment in second, like what we would call seconds. Like when you're uh, manufacturing stuff, it's like all the stuff you buy at Ross because it didn't quite pass inspection. Uh, not dissing Ross. I like you, Ross. Uh, stores. Um, so these are kind of, he's asking for all the discount clearance sheep. So he gets those, he agrees to it, but on the side, Laban totally tells his sons, take all the spotted and the speckled ones out like three days journey. And so he separates them. And so he takes them out of the care of Jacob. So Jacob improvises. He does what he can do because Laban has kind of reneged on the negotiation already by removing him from Jacob's care. So he takes all of the sheep that he's taking care of. And by the water, he takes these, these branches and he kind of scrapes them and they're kind of spotted and they have these white streaks. And a lot of the sheep go and kind of mate down by where the water is. And when they do, they end up throwing these or birthing these sheep that are spotted and speckled. And so he begins to do this. And then he takes all of the strong ones and he puts them down there to breed. And so as they're, they're born, they end up giving all of these sheep. So they're now growing um, into Jacob's herd. And God's blessing him in this way. Um, so he he ends up doing this. Well, all of the Jacob's brothers-in-laws, um, the sons of Laban, they're getting ticked. And they're starting to grumble amongst each other. And they're kind of talking trash like, Jacob is taking our whole inheritance. And so they go and cry to their dad about it. And it kind of, he starts looking at how things are going, how these sheep are being born. And now he's getting kind of mad. And definitely, like, Laban's a guy that he's kind of greedy. And so he's looking, he's like, yeah, this, like, he's looking at the, the bank account, essentially, by property. And he's like, wow, th this really looks to not be in my favor. And we know that Jacob can't, or Laban can't stand for things to not be in his favor. So as this happens and his attitude is souring, God comes to Jacob and he comes to him in a dream at night and he says, um, all right, Jacob, it's time to get going. You need to start moving. And so, it, and Jacob has tried to talk to Laban at different times. And every time he deals with him, he's always tricked or redigged on the, on the negotiation or the terms are rewritten. And so he just doesn't even he's not going to even go and tell Laban at this point. He's not really giving him a choice. So Jacob calls his wives out to the field where he's at and basically kind of talks to him and says, look, you know, your dad has changed the terms every time. And these, just to give you a little bit of customs um, or cultural insight, usually there would be a dowry and in a lot of cultures, the dowry goes with the wife as part of her household. So in some places, it's like property and furniture or whatever the case. But essentially, um, none of that has gone to his daughters, Rachel and Leah. The only thing that it really says they got were the handmaids to help them out, 
but it's like even they hadn't even received their possessions to start their own life that really should have been given by this point. I mean, shoot, at this point, there are 11 children, 10 to 11, depending on when Dinah is born. Um, so they, you know, Jacob tells them, hey, we got some real issues here. It's time to move. And they're kind of mad because their dowry hasn't been given and the property keeps keeps being taken. And so Jacob's like, I'm going to take what we do have now and the things that I have acquired and we're going to go. And they agree. The wives are like, yes, let's go. We don't care because they feel um, kind of shorted out of, out of their stuff too. So this all, you know, when he packs everything up, he makes sure to only pack what is theirs and no more. However, Rachel steals these idols. And these household idols, for some people, I've heard that there's like a, a cultural thing with this. Now you have to remember that um, sidebar history, we're going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. Abraham is related, as we know, to Laban's family. Um, and he sent back someone to find a wife, which was, um, which was Laban's sister. That's who his son married. And now this is the grandson of Abraham. They came from these same people and from these areas. And Abraham's dad, um, I think, was an idol maker. So they worshiped a different God. But there are some cultural understandings and just kind of, you know, family structure that that's the same. So some people believe that these idols were almost like um, if you possess them, the family idols, it would give you claim to property. Um, so someone that had those can come back and say, we own this land. So I, I don't fully know as far as that goes, but these are representative of another set of beliefs as well. So as they pack this stuff up, they leave, they get like a three-day head start um, and get going. Well, three days later, Laban finds out that they disappeared. They didn't say goodbye. They didn't anything. And I can understand that offense. Um, but he kind of put them in a position where they felt like if we say goodbye, you're going to try and make a stay, you know? So Laban's mad. And so he gets some guys and they are going to track down Jacob. And six days into this journey, he's about a day to catch up to Jacob. Uh, Laban is just seething and God comes to him in a dream and he warns him. He says, Laban, I'm warning you, you better leave Jacob alone. Like, basically, I have my hand on him. So when he finally catches up on the seventh day, and this is all from Genesis, um, but he finally catches up on the seventh day, and there ends up being this, there's this thing called a Mizpah that a lot of people talk about. And these are things where they end up having this agreement, and it's kind of funny First, he when, he when Laban tracks him down, he's like, how dare you leave like a thief in the night? You know, you're taking taking my stuff and all of these things and, and my grandchildren and my daughters, like shame on you, you know, for leaving. And basically, Jacob says, look, I could have never left if you, if I'd have told you goodbye, you know, and Laban's home, I would have given you a feast and all these things. And it's really a moot point. So 
as he goes through all of these these parts, he he says, and on top of it, somebody stole my idols. Well, Jacob, being a guy of integrity, he's like, I didn't steal your idols. I didn't tell anybody to steal your idols. I don't. What do I want with your stupid idols, right? So he says, then fine, go through all my things. You're here with with witnesses. We have family here before all the family. You go through all my stuff and you see if I've stolen anything of yours. And if I stole them, whoever whoever stole them can be put to death. Well, he doesn't know that he's really putting Rachel at risk. So he goes through Jacob's tent. He goes through Leah's tent. He goes through both the servants' wives' tents. And he finally gets to Rachel's tent. And in Rachel's tent, she has hidden these idols underneath like some saddlebags or I don't know, whatever, that she's sitting on. And she sits on them and she tells Dad, Forgive me for not getting up. It's my time of the month. Cramps, Dad. <laughs> so he goes through everything. He can't find him. So then by this point, Jacob's mad. And he's like, so tell me, where's the thing I stole from you? Is there anything I took from you that's not yours? And he's like, no, there isn't. You know, so he like, he kind of like to have his last little jab though, we see that in Genesis 31, uh, 43 and 44, there's this like little, like after all of this happens, um, Laban kind of has this like, he's so arrogant. It's like, ugh, he gets on my nerves a little bit. I mean, I could see though he's good because he taught Jacob because he's, he's so back and forth. Um, I once had a boss like this. She would say she she would say something, and then she would say she never said it. And um, my dad once told me. He said this is like one of my first jobs. He said, "Get a notebook, get like a daily journal, like a calendar, and every day document in it what happens that day. So what time you get there, what time you leave, and like um, if there was anything that happened, I." was doing like bookkeeping and stuff. And so I used to put overages, shortages, where they came from, all this stuff. And if my boss said anything, I would put it down. This is the new rule today. And so she would always change her mind and say she never said it. And that's the way Laban was. But it, it taught me to be uh, very accurate about what happened one day this lady came to me and she said that I had said something that, that didn't and she was confusing it with someone else. So I finally opened up my calendar and said, no, on this day you said this, on this day you said this, and this is who you told it to who related to me. This is what we agreed on. This lady, her face was very shocked and she never pulled that with me again. So... I digress, but that's that's what Laban kind of taught Jacob to do as well. But as his last, as Laban's last strikeout, because he's not getting his way, his last way to kind of be a little bit uh, emotionally manipulative is he says, these women, this is in Genesis 31, uh, 42 and 43, pointing to his daughters, Leah and Rachel. He says, these women... Uh, are my daughters and these children are my grandchildren. And then he says, these flocks are my flocks. 
<laughs> which totally like again trying to renegotiate and say i guess i'll let you keep them but they're mine like ah oh, how arrogant can you be so then he says but what can i do about it now and he's like now you know about my daughters and my children he says so basically let's come and make a covenant let's make an agreement and and really carefully really quickly i want to stop on that word covenant covenant is not just like a contract when we see it in the bible it's actually a reference of a promise with god so like when we talk about the marriage covenant a marriage covenant is actually a promise that's between you and God. So like when I get married, and this is, this is, I guess, what's helped me stay married, <laughs> um, is when I got married, it was my promise to God that I would take care and love and honor and respect my husband and kind of like an insurance policy he's the beneficiary and the same for him when he got married he promised that he would love and take care of me and he promised that to god and that i would basically be the beneficiary of that so in those days when i'm really super ticked and he's getting on my nerves not that i don't get on his nerves i think the score is probably better in his favor than mine. Uh, <laughs> but I know that I can love him and take care of him and, and respect him because that's what I promised God I would do, not him. <laughs> um, I guess it's a better way of breaking the tie. So, but covenants are promises that we make to God. So basically, um, Laban kind of wants to make this agreement that they they make this promise between God. And it's a place, this place, they end up calling it um, a couple of names. I'm about to butcher this, so totally get ready for that. Um, Laban calls it Jigar Shahadutha, which means in Aramaic, it means witness pile. And in the Hebrew, it's called Galid. Um, and they call this because Jacob then sets up a stone as a monument and he has all of these other people come and gather a stone and put it on this pile. So these are witnesses. These stones are each representative of the witnesses and also God is their witness because it's a covenant. So they basically make this promise that like, basically Laban says, you make sure you take care of my daughters. You make sure you take care of my family. Oh, and by the way, don't ever come past this boundary because everything from there on out is my side. So like there's no competition between herds and cattle and those kinds of things. So they make that covenant. So after that, they kind of sleep there for the night and they part ways. Now that we've talked about kind of this humility that Laban has built into Jacob's life, Jacob will now continue on home where he's from. So as he begins to head toward home, they kind of scout Esau's people. And so Jacob being super nervous because the conditions that he left, um, and I, I always, it's kind of funny, I think about this, 
he he sees that Esau's there and he sends messengers basically saying, please don't kill us. Are, are you okay with having peace with our servant Jacob or with your servant Jacob? And um, the messengers come back and they tell Jacob, Esau's got like an army of 400 dudes and he's coming to see you. So now we see Jacob is like so afraid, you know, and he's, so you see there's the humility here. He's not being arrogant. Like God just said, I'd rule over my brother. You know, he, he's, and I, I think from the family's perspective, I kind of wonder what it's like. His wives knew him without his family and his history, you know, do you ever meet people and then you get close enough to, to them to meet their family? And it's kind of interesting. You get to see their background story by meeting their family and kind of knowing where they come from and learning the conditions that they were raised in and stuff. So I think that must be kind of interesting for his wife and kids and all these people that knew him as this mighty guy of integrity, finding out that he's got a little bit of a shaded past. You know, his brother's mad because there was kind of some trickery there too. So I just think that's kind of a side, I guess, a personal thing that I, I look at, I guess. But so because these 400 people are coming back and there's not really a message or an answer back from Esau, um, really quickly, Jacob takes his household and he divides it into two camps. So that way, if they're attacked, there is a chance of at least maybe one camp getting away and surviving. So he's super nervous. So he does all this stuff and he like instantly prays to God. And, and what I love about this prayer is the humility in it. You can see where Jacob's heart is. Jacob, and, and I think it's a great example of how we can pray with God. You know, God's word is true. And so we can count on those promises. And it's great because he reminds God of those promises. So this is in Genesis 32, 9 through 12. And it says, then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, he says, you told me to return back to my own land and to my relatives. Like basically, God, I'm going because you told me to do this. <laughs> I'm feeling real scared. He says, and you promised me that you treat me kindly. And now I'm like, my brother's coming back. <laughs> so he's really nervous. He says, I'm not worthy of all of the unfailing love and faithfulness that you have shown to me, your servant. Again, a point of humility. He says, but when I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I own nothing except a walking stick. And now my household is filled with two large camps. Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me I will surely treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. So I love this prayer because he totally is kind of saying, God, I know like here's your promises that you gave me. And in some ways, those are a bolstering of our faith too. 
and he's asking for favor, and yet he's still humble about all of it. Like, basically, God, I know you're in charge of all these things. Please show mercy to me as you promised you would. And we know that God's word is true and that he does not lie. And so he's kind of reassuring also that, God, I'm hoping you'll get me there because you said you would. So I love like that part of the prayer. So after he prays this, he gets up and he crosses his families over uh, the river and he goes back and he's by himself in the camp by himself overnight. And when he comes back, when he's back there by himself, he has this wrestling, which I love this because it almost sums up this whole thing in his life. In the previous episode, I talked about how God had promised all these things to Jacob, and yet he never like took the ownership of it. He never, um, it was like it was there, but he didn't take possession. You know, um, I made an analogy about owning a car, but never taking the keys out of your pocket and using it. Um, so he wrestles with this man of God all night long. And finally, by morning, the person he's wrestling with says, let me go. And he's like, not until you bless me, not until you, you know, give me a blessing. And so he gets a new name. And I think this is the beauty about the whole thing is that who we are, we see that God renames people and it has to do with their identity in God, who they are in God's eyes. And I think so many of our issues are an identity issue. Um, and so God tell, tells him, "You'll from now on, your name is going to be Israel. And what it means is, or because you fought with God and with men and have won. And so he finally does like, as he's, he's doing this, he asks him, he says, what is your name? you know, to the, to this man of God. And he said, you know, basically he wasn't going to tell him, but Jacob named that place Peniel, which I probably butchered too, um, which means the face of God. And he said that he named it Peniel because he said, I have stood face to face with God and basically I've lived. So this guy, as he's letting go or getting away from Jacob, he touches his hip socket. And from there on out, Jacob, or Israel now, walks with a limp. And this is like, we see like, this is the point in Jacob's life where he really begins to be comfortable in his own skin. It's like his new name, Israel, finally answers all of these questions he's had and all these wanderings he's had. He finally has peace in a lot of ways. So he crosses the river as, as it's dawn, as he's been wrestling all night. This guy must have been super tired. So he goes and he sends all of these gifts ahead. And he instructs all of his people. He sends goats, both male and female, sheep, male and female, donkeys, cows, camels, all of these things. He sends them as a gift and he instructs everybody that is hurting each group of animals to when they come up to Esau and his people and they ask who he is and what they're doing there, 
to tell them, this is a gift from your servant, Jacob. And, you know, like basically, thank you, master. Um, and that he would be coming. And so as he sends these consecutive gifts, he finally meets up with Esau. And Jacob is still humble and sheepish and was like, uh, are we okay? <laughs> and Esau says, who are all these people with you? And he's like, this is my family. And they end up staying together that one at that night, you know, meeting. And he said, please take these gifts. And Esau's like, I got enough stuff. Like, don't even worry about it. And they continue with this back and forth. And Esau's like, I'm good, really. And finally, he takes the gift as like, a, okay, you know, basically, so you're not offended. Um, he took the gift. And they were going to go and meet up in um, the same location. And Esau said, you know, basically Jacob said, I'll catch up with you. And Esau said, you may have people like stay with you and show you the way. And he's like, nah, nah, we're good. He's like, but we got to go to slower pace than you guys. Cause y'all are like buff men. And you can see, I got babies and small animals here. They can't go as fast. So they were supposed to meet at Seir, but Jacob ended up just kind of traveling at a slower pace and ended up settling on this on the outside town of Shechem. So that has been kind of uh, the history, the main history between Jacob or Israel and his relationship with his brother, and most importantly, his relationship with God. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this, and uh, I look forward to visiting with you next time.